you're growing or perhaps you're shrinking. You change schools from preschool to elementary school to high school to college. You change jobs. You change houses. You move from place to place. Every second of your life, every second of your life, one million cells in your body dies. That means by the end of one day, in one day, that's over two and a half pounds of cells that have died and been replaced every day of your life. And why that's exciting, I don't know, but hallelujah. <laughs> You're an easy crowd. In the midst of all that change comes the one great ultimate change. The sumum bonum of all change, the pièce de résistance of all change, is the thing we're gathered here this morning to celebrate, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the simple reality, the eternal reality, that Easter changes everything. So just to get us focused on moving this morning, would you stand with me, please, as you're able to do that, in honor of the Word of God? And we're going to read together, just to get moving, this week's gospel lesson, Mark chapter 28, verses 1 to 10, Mark 28, 1 to 10. I'll read the plain text, if you'll read the highlighted portions, and that way we'll walk through it together. Mark 10, uh, 28, beginning verse 1, then this is what the Bible says. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated. Now that was Matthew's account of the most momentous moment, the most momentous, momentous event in all of human history. Because the truth is, Easter changes everything. In Genesis chapter 1, God created people, and human history officially began. In Genesis chapter 3, sin entered the world, and all of humanity was utterly, deeply, irrevocably broken. But here in Matthew chapter 28, we find God in His mercy inaugurated a brand new order through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the garden, Adam failed. And all creation suffered for it. So in Jesus, the second Adam, really the last Adam, everything changed. And unlike the first Adam, the Lord Jesus lived his life in perfect, unbroken communion with the Father. And in perfect, unbroken submission and obedience to the Father. From there, he gave his life as a ransom from many. And then on that very first Easter Sunday, he ushered in the promised resurrection of the dead. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. What happened with Jesus 
that very first Easter, was completely unlike anything that had ever happened before. That's why I can assure you this morning, Easter changes everything. In the last week of our recent study through the book of Acts, in your reading, you should have come across these words of the Apostle Paul. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. You'll notice here that Paul refers to Jesus as the first to rise from the dead. And at this point, the careful reader of Scripture might be tempted to ask, wait a minute, what about Lazarus or Jairus' daughter? or the widow of Nain's son, or any of those three guys that were raised in the Old Testament under the ministries of Elijah and Elisha the prophets. Even a quick count suggests that Jesus was roughly number seven. So what's Paul talking about? When he says in the text he was the first to rise from the dead, that's a great question, and the truth is you need to understand the answer. By the first century A.D., most of the Jews had come to believe in the promised coming resurrection of the dead. An end-of-time event that would usher in the end of this world and the arrival of the next, the fullness of the kingdom of God. When those who had died would rise again, the righteous to inherit their reward, and the wicked to receive their just deserts. Some 500 years before the arrival of Jesus, Daniel prophesied of a day when multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. When Martha spoke with Jesus about the, death of her, uh, or the recent death of her brother Lazarus, she said confidently, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. A few chapters later, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking to a man who's thrown a great banquet. And he tells the guy, listen, next time, invite people who cannot possibly return the favor. And then he promised the guy, although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And my point here is simply this, that belief in the coming resurrection of the dead was firmly entrenched in Jewish thought at the time of Jesus. It was widely anticipated at this time, and yet no one made any reference to it whatsoever at the raising of Lazarus or Jairus' daughter or the widow of Nain's son. Why is that? Because the promised resurrection of the dead was much, much more than a mere reanimation of the flesh. It was a mind-boggling end-time event involving glorious bodily transformation, marking the transition from life in this broken world to life in the world to come, life in the fullness of God's kingdom, life in the fullness of God's glory. And as spectacular as the raising of Lazarus from the dead was, or the raising of the widow's son was, those people were not in those moments eternally transformed. In other words, Lazarus and the rest of those guys were not resurrected in the biblical apocalyptic sense of the word. 
In fact, the Greek word for resurrection is not applied to Lazarus or the widow of Nain's son, uh, to Dorcas, to Eutychus, to any of those people. Instead, in those cases, the Bible uses the verb agero, meaning to wake up or to rouse from some slumber. In other words, those guys were roused for a period of time, eventually to die again. Their spirits were returned for a season to the very same unchanged mortal body their spirits had departed from at death. It's like you put a quarter in and you get a quarter out. You put a nickel in, you get a nickel out. In each case, the body that died was the exact same body that came back. Reanimated, absolutely, but not yet changed. This was not the promised eternal transformation that is the resurrection of the dead. Rather, in those cases, Lazarus and on and on, it was more or less a sort of a resuscitation. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus, however, was something altogether different. What happened with Jesus was of an entirely different type on an entirely different scale. The body of the Lord Jesus was not merely reanimated, it was eternally transformed. It went into the grave, a natural, ordinary human body. A thing of mere bone and sinew. But it came out of the grave. A glorious, eternal, spiritual body. A body that somehow merged spirit and flesh. A body every bit as at home in heaven as in the earth. A pneumosomaticon in the Greek. A spiritual body. A real, genuine, material, flesh-and-bone body. You could touch it. It could eat, but changed. Sanctified, glorified. No longer bound by the laws of time and space. Jesus could be in a room and then suddenly not in the room. Jesus could be not in a room and suddenly in the room. It was the same body he'd used for some 30-odd years, and yet he could now, after the resurrection, appear in a form that no one could recognize him. It was sown in weakness, but raised in power. A body that was sown mortal, but raised immortal. It's like taking a nickel and and putting it in a cup and pulling out a million dollars. This is not a million dollars. But I am going to put that in my pocket now. Listen, when Jesus rose from the dead, He didn't merely return from the dead. He initiated a whole new reality. Lazarus was restored to his old life and his old body. The widow of Nain's son was restored to his old life and his old body. But Jesus came back another way. Not merely roused, but resurrected. Into a brand new eternal life in a brand new transformed eternal body. At his resurrection, Jesus Jesus ushered in and validated the hope that so many of you in this room are clinging to. The promise that one day you too will be changed. That one day you too will be transformed and you too will be with the Lord forever. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was the proof, the premiere, and the preview of everything that has been promised. 
to all who have put their trust in him and to all who will live their lives for him. Listen to me when I tell you, Easter changes everything. And the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the reason for our hope. In Luke's introduction to the book of Acts, he writes of Jesus, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. I love that it says here, he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. I've read the skeptics. I've read the doubters. I've read the challenges. I've read the apologists. And I am convinced. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It dominated the thinking and the preaching of the early church, and it constitutes the heart and the soul of the Christian faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, nothing else in Christianity matters. Those people who say they want to hold on to the teachings of Jesus while denying the resurrection of Jesus simply do not get it. Because without the resurrection of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus have no authority. Without the resurrection of Jesus the Christ, he would be just another dead moralist. Just another dead philosopher. Worse still, because he had repeatedly prophesied his own death and resurrection, without the resurrection of Jesus, he would be just another false prophet. Just another religious deceiver. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation for everything we believe and hope for. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot be saved. You cannot have peace with God apart from the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, if Christ is not raised, your hope is futile. You are still in your sins. Without the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, there simply is no Christianity. Stop coming to church. Stop reading your Bible. Stop praying. Stop tithing. Stop doing all of it. None of it has any kind of lasting value if Jesus did not rise from the dead. But he did. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. The resurrection of Jesus Christ did happen. And with it, everything changed. So will you think with me for just a few moments about some of the ramifications of the resurrection of Jesus? I tell you, everything changed, so I won't cover everything. We'll cover three things. How's that? First and foremost, we have to conclude that the resurrection of Jesus Christ means Jesus is Lord and God, just as Thomas the skeptic declared. After Jesus' resurrection, when the other disciples told Thomas that they'd actually seen him, alive and well and walking around, Thomas' response was was about as stubbornly skeptical as it could get. John reported it this way. It says, Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Thomas declared flatly, I will not believe, I refuse to believe, and you cannot make me. 
plastic flowers. <clears throat> you cannot make me. And that was Thomas's position for about a week until Jesus, is walk Jesus walked up to him. And upon seeing the resurrected Lord Jesus, Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. The resurrection of Christ means he is who the Bible says he is. God in human flesh, King of kings and Lord of lords. As the Bible uh, proclaims in Romans 1.4, he was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of the Christ settles the matter. Jesus is Lord and God, which raises the very troubling question. Why do so many people claim to believe in the resurrection but live their lives day by day with very little regard for Jesus or his will? When Thomas came to believe in Jesus, he fell at his feet in worship and he committed his life to him in service. The resurrection of Jesus declares He is Lord and God. Jesus is not an option. Jesus is not a priority. Jesus is everything. And to respond to Him in any way less than that is honestly to respond to Him sinfully. Jesus is Lord. He simply leaves you no room to say you believe and then live like you want to. Easter changes everything. Number two, the resurrection of Jesus Christ demonstrates once and for all that death is not the end. Over and over in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the first to rise from the dead, the firstborn from among the dead. And noting often his position as first among those who were resurrected, the Bible makes it clear, more resurrections are coming. This life is not the end. There is much more to come. As Paul explained to the Christians in Corinth, if only for this life, we have hope in Christ. We are to be pitied more than all men. Listen, the truth is this life is hard. It abounds with loss and sickness and sin and pain and disappointment. I talk with people all the time, often Christian people, who are struggling in this life. Sadly, for the Christians, they seem often unable to see beyond this life. Professing Christians for whom the hope of the resurrection seems insufficient for them. Professing Christians who live every day of their lives as if this life is everything, as if somehow this life is their reward. Listen, it is absolutely okay from time to time to groan or mourn or moan over this life. Paul says so in Romans chapter 8. David did it frequently in the Psalms. It's okay on occasion to groan inwardly as we wait, as we long for what we know is to come. It's okay to do that from time to time. But it is never, ever, never okay to let the trials of this life wipe you out or to rob you of the hope of the life to come if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. 
Life in this broken world is not life as it was meant to be. We broke it. Now we encounter sin, we encounter hardship, we encounter trials, we encounter difficulties. We ourselves create a mess of them. The people around us create a mess more. Life in this world is not life as it was meant to be. So you need to stop imagining somehow it should be. This life is passing away. It is going to end. If you're listening to my voice right now, I assure you, unless the Lord returns first, you are going to die. But death is not the end. Easter changes everything. Many lost people today, many non-Christians today, console themselves with the false idea that when they die, it's just over. They simply cease to exist. But the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ makes it clear. Something lies beyond this life. And you only have this life to get ready for it. You can spend the life you have here living for yourself and your own pleasure without regard for what comes next. You can spend the time you have here lamenting everything that's not right, uh, bemoaning what you don't have, or you can spend the time you have here preparing for the life that is to come, storing up treasure for that day like Jesus encouraged the, the banquet thrower to do. But rest assured, the day is coming when you and I and everyone else must stand before the God who made us and give an accounting of what we've done with the life we have right now. At the resurrection of all flesh, some will go away to be with Jesus and some will be sent far from him. But the resurrection of the Christ makes it clear that day is coming. Number three. Because Jesus predicted on numerous occasions his own death and resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ confirms that everything he says can be trusted. After all, if he was right about his own resurrection, the rest of it should be cake. Now let me be very practical here. That the word of the Lord can be trusted means the issue never, ever is. What do you think? What do you feel? Or what do your friends have to say? Rather, the issue is always, always, what does the Lord have to say? The issue is not, what do you think about abortion or same-sex marriage or paying your taxes or forgiving your mother? The only issue ever is, what does the Lord say about that? The very first overt lie in the Bible was to dispute a clear word from God to say a sin was actually not a sin. God told Adam and Eve not to eat from a particular tree in the middle of the garden, and he said if they did, it would bring about death. And then the devil came and said, that's not true. The devil said, actually, it's good for you. And Adam and Eve trusted the devil rather than trusting the word of the Lord. Today, there are many, many voices in our world carrying on that very same work of the devil, saying to you, sin, that's not a sin. Actually, it's good for you. They say, abortion isn't sin. It's good for women. It's necessary for them to be free. 
They say sex outside of marriage isn't a sin. They say it's actually good for you. It's how God meant for you to be. Those voices tell you, listen, agreeing with them makes you wise. It makes you cool. It makes you hip. It makes you modern. It makes you smart. Those voices tell you, it's okay to hold a grudge. That's not a sin. Some things shouldn't be forgiven. In your case, well, your case is special anyway. In these and a million other cases like them, they say, go on, don't worry about it. It's not sin. It won't really lead to death. Too often Christians get bogged down in their own thoughts and their own opinions instead of simply focusing on Jesus, on who he is and what he says. Because as the resurrected Lord, whatever he says is right. Whatever he says is final. Easter changes everything. Because it was on Easter, when the Lord Jesus returned from the dead, that he once and for all and forever opened the door to new life, eternal life with God. So that, according to the Bible, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, not just Savior, not just friend, not just the giver of good gifts. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Easter changes everything. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to peace with God. The only way to life with God. The only way you can be who and what you were created to be. And when the Lord calls people to himself through Jesus, he always begins by calling them to repent. To turn from your own ways. To turn from your old ways. To turn from the ways that aren't working to turn from the ways that will pass away and to turn to God and His ways. To turn from that which will not last to that which was designed to last forever. Easter changes everything. And there is no better day than today to let it change you. I pray, my prayer has been, for those of you who love Jesus dearly, that today you would come to love him better. That you would appreciate his resurrection more. For those of you who are kind of, sort of, in there somewhere, that you would come to see him as Savior and Lord, Lord and God, like Thomas did. And for those who don't know him at all, that you would be pricked, that you would be stirred, and that you would come to know him as he is. Father God, we thank you for us always for the power and the clarity of your word. Your word which tells us who you are and what you're like. Your, your word which shows us who we are and what we're supposed to be like. Your word that shows us the power and the truth and the transformation that came with the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. Father, we love you and we want to be more and more like you. Change us, we pray, moment by moment and day by day by a work of your spirit within us, by the work of your word within us, 
Make us more and more the people you've called us and created us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah.